I'm here with John Beamer from the Davis County Public Library staff, and we are going to talk about a new project the library has launched called Verbatim. John, tell us what Verbatim is. Basically, Verbatim is a new journal of creative writing and art sponsored by the library, and it focuses on writers, mostly with writers um, with some sort of connection to Owensboro and Davis County. Uh, it's really just a way for people in the community to share stories with one another and to be published. And it also contains visual art, correct? Right. Um, there's, a, there's a few pieces of visual art from local artists, including the cover done by um, Brescia art student John Bolin that everyone's been really pleased with. Is this something you saw other libraries doing or another organization? Just uh, what, what was the inspiration? I'm not sure if I've seen other libraries doing it, but I think it would be a good way for libraries to, to help local writers. But basically the inspiration came from my undergrad experiences as an English major at Brescia University here in town. And they have a, they had a, um, a yearly journal of creative writing that they would publish, and I got to be part of that. I wanted to continue doing that here and give people the opportunity to to share their work on a broader scale than just the college. That was open all night, right? Or open 24 hours. Open 24 hours, right. Yeah. I remember that. Um, so they're no longer doing that? I don't think they are. Um, there's talks about doing something, some sort of version of that in the future, but nothing right now, I don't think. What was your tactic for finding writers? I imagine that's a pretty daunting task. I compare it to my... Uh, my task of finding filmmakers for Unscripted. I know sometimes you get a lot of submissions, sometimes you don't get enough. How did you solicit these submissions and what was your success rate? Well, we sent out a call for submissions in person at the library through posters and printed advertisements. Uh, and we also promoted it online through our social media platforms. And we sent calls for submission to local English departments at universities and colleges, as well as um, some English teachers at the high schools. So they were able to pass that information along to people through word of mouth um, to promote it. And we, we got a lot of submissions, and I was really pleased with the number that we got and the quality of the submissions, too. Now... We recently had a launch night for Verbatim, and several of these people came in to read. Did everyone from the book come in, or was... I would say the, probably about half of the people who were in it showed up. There were a few people from out of town who weren't able to, but um, there was one person who lived in Ohio, I think, and she sent in a recording of herself reading. We were able to play that. Um, at the at the launch, and everyone seemed to enjoy that. So she was able to be part of it as well. I know from working it that the event was very well attended. How do you feel things went? I think everyone enjoyed it. It was a, a neat experience to get to meet the people that I've seen these names for months and finally getting to meet the people who, who pro provided these um, stories and this art. And it was a, a good experience for people getting to you know, to mingle and to meet their fellow writers um, and to share their their stories aloud. I heard just positive things across the board from people who attended. And you sold out of Verbatim on the first night. Yes, we sold uh, all 75 copies that we ordered in our first printing. 
Yeah, that was great. And you've got a second printing on the way. Yes, uh, we ordered another 100 copies, but the way it's set up is we can always order more copies if we run out, so there's no worry about that. And you're thinking about doing an ebook version too? Yes, we plan on providing an ebook version through Overdrive so that people will be able to check it out um, online. We plan on adding it to the collection as well at the library so people, if they don't want to purchase a copy, they can just check one out and look through it. We'll play a few of these stories now from the event. The rest of them we will release on SoundCloud. You'll be able to get those through our podcast feed on iTunes and also directly through SoundCloud in the form of like a mixtape. We'll call it the verbatim mixtape. Who are we going to hear from first, John? Uh, first, you're going to hear from Phoebe Athey, and her piece is The Biggest Angel. The Biggest Angel. Okay, we'll play that now and meet you on the other side. Everyone everywhere has heard the story of the littlest angel, and I, for one, am sick of it. Have we not heard enough pathetic whining and whimpering from this deceased little tyke? Of his persecution and ostracism in heaven by all the big angels. Isn't it about time the story of the religious persecution of large angels came to light, be revealed unto us? When are big angels ever going to get closure? Well, I have a bigger, better Christian Christmas tearjerker story that will put that little angel, the little match girl, and tiny Tim in their places. At last, the poignant story of the biggest angel, who would in fact be me at the age of six, in the Settle Memorial Methodist Church Christmas Nativity Pageant shall be told. I have no doubt 2,000 years from now, some learned college professor at say, for example, Kentucky Wesleyan College will refer to the littlest angel as a mythological 20th century invention as an apocryphal biblical addition, grievously insulting the faith of some born-again Baptist from Muhlenberg County who will be protesting with righteous outrage. No, it's in the Bible. It's right there in Ephesians. Quoting some obscure chapter and verse no one wants to bother to look up. My story is a true personal testimony and I didn't make it up either. However, I fear it will never find itself woven back into the book of Revelations. To be a standard human specimen, to be of medium height, to be of average weight, was the conformist ideal of the 1951 Eisenhower era of return to normalcy. Accordingly, Owensboro had a collective all-Christian, all-American goal of mediocrity of neutrality, of peaceful complacency, of the ordinary, of the general. And being a Kentucky small town with its southern sympathies, the added component of correct ladylike behavior in little girls was that any demonstration of intelligence was always frowned upon. As a child, I too shared such winning popularity contest goals of fitting in, but alas, such normal aspirations were futile. My dreams of being a team player blocked 
from the outset and a favorite football metaphor. I was just too large to be six years old. My mother often had occasion to point out to family and friends and rank strangers who encountered me on the street that I was only six, but according to my pediatrician's weight and height chart, I was within normal limits, perfectly acceptable parameters for my age. I was not, uh, it was not until I started reading Seventeen magazine that I realized those American Medical Association weight charts were always off by at least 50 pounds. That dark day in late December, I had come home from church and Sunday school in tears and moreover refusing food. The reason, I was the only child in the first grade Sunday school class who had been excluded from the manger scene. No room for me at the inn. I wanted a beautiful angel costume like all the other little girls. The gospel, according to St. Luke, had not been specific about the number of angels in attendance, but had been clear about their size, no matter what my pediatrician's weight and height chart said. My mother, the avenging angel demanded that I be included in the nativity pageant. Why had her daughter been the only child left out? Had they not been the most faithful churchgoers? No Sunday missed? Had any pledge or tithing lapsed? Oh, it was the most unfortunate oversight. The missionary sewing circle had been making costumes for weeks and would not have time to make one for me. I'll make her costume, insisted the avenging mother angel. It has been said, beware of all enterprises requiring the purchase of new clothes. Let it also be said, beware of all ideas beginning with the premise, wouldn't it be cute if? The other Settle Memorial Methodist church mothers had decided it would be cute to display their angelic, delicate little daughters on planted candelabra stands so they would rise above the manger scene tableau. The maxim, children should be seen and not heard, was about to be on its way out. Now, child safety was not in 1951 the exacting science it is today. But the Settle Memorial pulpit stands were strong, heavy, and made to match the dark Gothic solid oak wood architecture. However, they were not quite up to supporting a heroically sturdy child, such as myself, for example. My parents can still quote the dear, dry, rather cerebral Methodist minister of the 1950s, Dr. Wade. The altar will not become a theatrical stage. The pulpit, not a public address system. We are here to praise the Lord, not each other. Dr. Wade frowned on applause in church, something about vanity being a sin. But moral and ethical consistency is no longer the bother it was then. Oh, he should see it now. The pierced belly buttons pressed up to the communion rail. Secret auditions for the nativity pageant had been held without me. 
Now, getting into a crash scene, a nativity display at Settle Memorial Methodist Church in 1951 was an early form of a child beauty pageant. The prettiest little girl in the first grade was Mary, of course, and the tallest, handsomest boy was Joseph. Joseph really didn't care what he was wearing. A chenille bathrobe was fine. Mary was the only one allowed to wear the bridal white lace tablecloth mantilla. My grandmother, like Dr. Wade, another old-fashioned maniac for moral and ethical consistency, frequently reassured me with a, reassured me with a maxim, pretty is as pretty does. I resisted with an unsouthern, unladylike reverse of intelligence to inform grandmother that the converse was more usually true. Pretty is pretty, I thought. You could take one look at, a, at our snottiest little queen bee ouch in the first grade Mary and see that. In our elementary school understanding of theology, the original Mary, we thought, had been selected as the winner of God's great all-time Miss America of the Middle East beauty pageant, beauty contest. My personal understanding of the Annunciation was that Mary had just received a written confirmation she was a final contestant in God's celestial universal beauty pageant. Our little <clears throat> Settle Memorial Virgin Mary bride elect came to church in her family Cadillac. No donkey for her until the cardboard one inside the church. My parents' modest Methodist vehicle always embarrassed me. My parents really did drive the kind of car Jesus would choose if he couldn't find a donkey on credit at Don Moore Jr. Auto. <laughs> Paid for in cash, neither a borrower nor a lender be. Now that I have come back to Owensboro, I note that that six-year-old Mary is still in Owensboro, now 60 as I am, even more aggressively evangelical, wearing an ostentatious Christmas sweater. I am glad to see she can fit felt appliques of Santa, his sleigh, and all his reindeer around her waist girth. She no longer rides in a Cadillac, but drives a humongous SUV gas guzzler with a chrome Jesus symbol on its bumper ass, and I can scarcely resist the temptation to ram into it in the Settle Memorial parking lot. <laughs> My mother proved herself to be remarkably gifted in tool netting, crepe paper, and truly parade quality ostentatious display. The Methodist style of the 1950s was a subdued, tasteful beige and pale olive which mother observed in her own dress, but suddenly showed an uncommon kind of Las Vegas dramatic showgirl flair for her oversized child. I was a mass of diaphanous swaddling. Now, the first runner-ups in the Settle Memorial Methodist Virgin Mary pageant were assigned pale heavenly powder blue, and the third runner-ups a deeper hue. But as it was decided there was no flanking angel for me, I got to be the pink angel. The pulpit itself was the only lectern strong enough to bear my weight, but I have told you Dr. Wade didn't approve of that. Therefore, a plant stand was found long since out of service in the church basement for me and placed just over the Star of Bethlehem. I could be seen from afar. 
No pattern had been yielded to my mother for my angel costume, and when it was, reluctantly, mother declared the wings were not in proportion to my normal pediatrician chart size. The word and concept of proportion. My father worked feverishly as well, particularly on the swing proportion problem as the holy season was growing short. He was a petroleum engineer with apparently no concept of costume, of things temporary and false front. He built things to last, unlike some men of the settled congregation who had profited on post-war building boom construction by cutting corners. He never failed to pronounce when driving the last nail into home carpentry projects, this will last until kingdom come. He got out his T-square and drawing board, redesigning and reinforcing the wings of my coat hanger makeshift costume with Leonardo da Vinci flying machine inventiveness mm -hmm. until I had enormous, fully articulated oil derrick wings, professionally welded hinges and struts with grappling hooks for secure fastening. A good thing in the light of later events. No flimsy chicken wire and coat hangers for me. My wings realistically flapped and fluttered. Yes, I came from a loving home. Owing to the inclement weather, my parents thoughtfully encased me under the masses of pink tulle netting into my bulky snowsuit suit, lest I catch a chill in the children's professional from the educational building next to the church. A good thing in the light of later events. Christmas Eve arrived, finding me in readiness with sausage curls, too numerous to mention, but in proportion to my size and also a mother's artistry. And a tinsel halo, lots and lots of tinsel around and around, attached at the back of my neck with an iron ramrod extending from an orthopedic neck brace left over from a back surgery disc removal operation my father had once had also my father's design. I was a one-child Christmas parade float, a pink crepe paper and tulle knit nimbus. As the pink archangel, I had upstaged Mary and baby Jesus by quite a lot. Why be plain old Mary when you can become Marie Antoinette? be outstanding instead. There I was, looming largely above the star of Bethlehem, a vision from above. But hadn't Grandmother Bowman also been fond of repeating yet another annoying adage, pride goeth before a fall. The only reference points for the production of angelic gestures were, having been excluded from angel rehearsals, were snow angels I had made in the past. So I did a lot of that. <laughs> then the plant stand was teetering. I thought holding my breath might help be efficacious. <laughs> it was either epiphany time or apocalypse now. So it came to pass, 
that during the whispering quiet finale chorus of Silent Night, I became the fallen angel. I crashed into the crash. I am proud of my aplomb during this that theatrical disaster by my saving grace after plunging through the cardboard cutout refrigerator box stable, generously donated from the Hot Point appliance store, and into the hay donated from Harrelson's Feed and Grain, when I had the presence of mind to scoop up the large rubber doll which had broken my fall, and deliver it in an offhand casual presentation. This doll was not really an anatomically correct boy doll. He was Betsy Wetsy in Baby Jesus Drag. My fall from grace had caused incontinence in Betsy Wetsy, which prompted me to deliver the line. Here's Jesus, your holy babe. He's all wet. You can have him. Winged victory. Leave stage directions. Pink angel flapping wings. Who do we have next? Next up is Ron Whitehead, and his piece is titled Moxley and Irene, Moonshine King and Bargoo Queen. All right, we'll play that now. Mama gave me a tin cup when I was a boy. Till I left home when I was 17, I wore a thin rope to hold my pants up. I've always been skinny. I kept my tin cup and a knife with a bottle opener on my rope. They both came in handy many times, including and especially my last visit with Moxley and Irene. I was 16, a year away from leaving home, leaving home for good, leaving home forever. I'd come to visit Moxley and Irene traveling by boat alone. I didn't know how many more times I'd have this opportunity. It was a crisp, clear day in early September. The sad and glad of early fall filled me up. It felt good, but it ached with loneliness, too. Some of you know that several miles southwest of Centertown, 27 miles from Owensboro, Owensboro, the self-proclaimed Burgoo capital of the world, deep, and I mean deep, in the bottoms where the bobcats still live on an island on a tight curve of Green River, the deepest river in the world with catfish that have swallowed children whole, the Green River with nest of water moccasins in every cove on a tight curve of Green River lived in a wicked, crooked dirt hut, old Moxley and his wife Irene. The island called Toad's Island rose peaking with a small hill above the green. It had flooded only once back in 37. Unlike most of the Irish and Scots in Ohio County, the fifth largest county and one of the poorest in Kentucky, home of Bill Monroe, the father of bluegrass music, resting across the Green River from Muhlenberg County in paradise. Unlike most of the Irish and Scots, Moxley's parents had come from Hungary and Irene's from Greece back in the 1800s. When I was a boy, I visited Moxley and Irene with Daddy or Granddaddy Dick. We stopped by after running trout lines. Some city people might call them trout lines, but we never caught no trout on them. We caught catfish, snapping turtles, snakes, and eels, all of which occasionally found their way into Irene's burgoo, the best and most peculiar, unlike any other burgoo in the world. Irene was the burgoo queen, although few will admit it. Folks from miles away, including all the way from Owensboro, 
eventually found their way to Toad's Island down on the Green River and borrowed the recipes which continue to be used on rare private and special occasions for Irene's Burgoo and Moxley's Moonshine Whiskey. Moxley was the Moonshine King. Moxley and Irene had an orchard and a garden, but Moxley always said he lived on snake, snapping turtle, possum, and moonshine whiskey. By the time I was 16, I'd seen him eating and drinking all of them more than once, and with his big red and purple nose, I figured he was telling the truth. He kept his moonshine still right in front of, it, of their hut. They had a one-eyed black cat with no tail called Spit and a three-legged dog called Tick. Irene, I guess, was probably a witch, but a decent one. And by the time I first met her when I was a boy, she may have forgotten most of what she once knew. But she had remembered how to make burgoo, the most unusual and distinctively flavored burgoo I've ever tasted. Same was true of Moxley's moonshine. I can barely even approximate their magic recipes. I was a poor witness, especially once moonshine Moxley began offering pouring his moonshine, God's tears, into my tin cup. It was the smoothest heart liquor I've ever in my entire life tasted. My vision blurred as I watched Moxley on my left and Irene on my right. Sometimes they become one not too pretty person, but despite their strangeness, I always liked both of them, so no matter how ugly they looked as one person, it didn't matter. I didn't care. I just sat there watching and grinning and smelling while they brewed the burgoo in the moonshine. Moxley poured in spring water, which he collected running directly out of the side of their Toes Island Hill. He added pure cane sugar, cracked corn, and malt. He always cut the first gallon with water because it was so strong. It kicked harder than a mule or an utter sore milk cow. Sometimes he added burnt sugar and water to change the coloring. He did that for variety. While Moxley was cooking up his strange brew, my attention wandered back and forth, so I watched Irene cook her burgoo too. I watched her make burgoo several times over the years, and it was always different depending on what she had available. This particular time, the last time I saw her make it when I was 16, she killed a chicken, snuck up behind it and cut its head off before it knew what happened. Then she plucked it and tossed it in. Then instead of beef or pork, she added chunks of snapping turtle, possum, water moccasin, and eel. Even though fish isn't common to Burgoo, I'm pretty sure, despite the moonshine I drunk, that she threw in several pieces of catfish. I'd brought her two rabbits I killed hunting with Daddy. I helped her skin them. Then she threw them in, bones and all, didn't even cut off their heads. Of course, the pot, which was in, on an open fire in front of the hut was filled with water from the river. She also mixed in some dirty dishwater. For some reason I never discovered before adding the water, she first placed river rocks in the bottom of the pot. Once the water was ready, she tossed in tomatoes, potatoes, onions, garlic, cabbage, peppers, carrots, corn, beans, peas, ketchup, salt, pepper, thyme, vinegar, sauces, homemade red wine, plenty of Moxley's moonshine, pinches of a variety of herbs, and she said words I didn't understand. Maybe Greek, the language of her ancestors, and she said them like she was casting a spell. It was spooky the way she chanted those words, getting a glaze far away, looking her dark eyes. Good Lord, I knew it was going to be good. It always was. She cooked it for hours. I'm not sure how many hours because I passed out. When I woke up, the sun had said it was a beautiful starry night. The full moon was rising. A pack of wild dogs was barking way off in the distance. Up river, crickets, katydids, frogs, and lightning bugs brightened the night, providing a brilliant sound and light show. Irene and Moxley handed me food and drink, burgoo and moonshine, best food in the world, bar none. We stayed up late into the night, sharing stories, listening close to each other, to the bobcat's mournful wail, listening to the spirits walking the earth late, late at night when the veil tween worlds disappears. The next morning, just after daybreak, a buzzing fly woke me up. 
all three of us had fallen asleep on the ground up close to the fire which had fallen to a dull ember almost out. The sun was cracking the sky over the trees east of the green. I rose, walked silently to my boat, and glided away. It was my final visit, the last time I saw my dear ancient friends, Moxley and Irene, Moonshine King, Burgoo Queen. Thank you all. Thank you, John, and everybody for this beautiful publication. Thank you. Let's play one more, and then, like I said, we'll release the rest of the stories individually, which you can find on our SoundCloud page and our iTunes feed. So who will we play now? Next is Brooks Rexroth, and his piece is titled The Invasion of Narva. All right, we'll hear that now. I'm going to read just a, a piece uh, of my, my essay, The Invasion of Narva, uh, and that starts on page 24. Um, so I'll read the, uh, the first and last section, and I'll, I'll leave the, the middle um, for you to, to handle at home, uh, if you wish. All the seats were taken, and my legs ached. They ached from crouching against the Tallinn bus station's unpainted cinder block wall. They ached from the, walk, the walking, the old city, and the new city, up a thousand stairs to the un onion-domed St. Olaf's Church, only to find it under heavy repair. People still snapped photos of the facsimile canvas draped over the building to give tourists an idea of what they might have seen had they chosen a better year to visit. My legs ached from the walk back down all those stairs through the striking views of the city and the sea tempered uh, and sea tempered some disappointment. Though, sorry, the striking views of city and sea tempered some disappointment. They ached from unexpected walking too. The city trams quit running for a reason no one was able or willing to articulate, so I hoofed it all the way to the bus terminal on the edge of town. I ached from a poor night's sleep in the hostel's annex, the gutted warehouse with rows of floor-bound mattresses, a place where late arrivals slept with half the amenities and all the price of the regular rooms. In that bus terminal, men stood except for the very old or very young, except for aching me. By that point in the day and the trip, I was far too tired to hang in with all that chivalrous elevation, so I crouched. So too did the uniformed soldier. I saw the spit polish first, then the sidearm, then the stern Baltic jawline, the tilted serious brow. A panicked stream of curses flowed through my head. He kept still for a moment maybe two feet away, eyes all over me. Inspection by a foreign soldier was perhaps the last thing on my list of things to do in Eastern Europe. Reflected in his eyes, I swear I saw the outline of a Soviet-era detention room. You are from America, he said, that E stretched across two syllables. I nodded. I heard you at the ticket counter. I nodded again. I read his face, I tried to read his face for details on how this was about to go. It was a face left smooth by youth rather than razors, capped with dirty blonde hair. His nose looked as though it had been broken at least once. There was a small scar on his left cheek. His eyes might have recorded his, his eyes might have recorded his face, but my eyes might have recorded his face, but inside my head, a calculus was forming between the level of weariness, the possible benefit of adrenaline, and the speed with which maybe I could get out the door and duck the corner, divided by the cost of replacing the luggage, the belongings I would have to leave behind. I am, finally, I finally said, because like most people, I can't help but speak when confronted by too much quiet. 
I like your Obama, but I cannot support him, the man said. I was disarmed at least a little at this benign sentence. Probably, I sighed. It was 2010, and I knew plenty of folks back home in the Midwestern United States who maybe agreed with this kid. I was in the second week of a self-booked Europe tour, lugging a Martin guitar and a bag of clothes between nightclubs and cafes, mostly off the beaten path of the well-worn capitals, because those were the places that would have me, because those were the places where a singing American was a marketable novelty, no matter what he sounded like and no matter whether anyone had ever heard of him. I was on my way to the border town of Narva, a speck of Estonia that juts like a little dagger into the northern shoulder of Russia's mainland mass. There, I would sing at an outdoor festival celebrating May Day, a late add-on to a bill that ranged from Estonian folk bands to a German metal trio. I would be paid in borscht and beer, which was more than I'd have made for a similar show back home. He looked down at that guitar for a moment, then back at my eyes. Too much silence again, but this time I just nodded again because what on earth do you say to that? See, he said, I am a soldier. He hung there for a second, made good and certain I could gather the gravity in his inflection. When your Obama brings world peace, how do I feed my family? Half of me wanted to laugh and the other half wanted to kiss him for that sweet and unabashed optimism, except that as I looked at his face, I didn't see optimism at all. His face was accusatory, his eyes narrow with irritation. I stopped noticing the way my legs ached. I think you'll be just fine. I told him in the most soothing voice I could muster. You've got nothing to worry about, really. He scrunched his brow, legitimately looked confused, as though he'd expected me to argue or pull a flag from my suitcase and start waving it. They called my bus before, um, before I could think up any deeper explanation. I pointed to the gate number so he wouldn't confuse my motion with avoidance. I picked up my first bag and looked at him. He remained in his crouch. He doesn't have that much power, I tried to explain. Then who does? We stared at each other for a moment. Then I picked up the guitar case and started off. I queued beside the bus, chucked my things in the hold, and looked back one more time just before boarding. He was leaning on the frame of the main doorway watching. He waved. I nodded and climbed on board. I'll skip to page 28. Um, in between, uh, there, there, are more, uh, there are more cops. There's a, a ride in a police car uh, that was uh, not wanted necessarily, but, but much more pleasant uh, than I thought it might be. Um, picking up on 28. On February 25th, 2015, I clicked a headline of the website of the Washington Post that proclaimed U.S. and British armed forces had just paraded 300 yards from Russia's border. In the midst of a proxy war in Ukraine and a state of heightened tension stretching from the Baltic to the Black Sea, half a dozen countries sent troop delegations to help celebrate Esti Vabargi Astapayev, Estonia's Independence Day. None of this was particularly unusual. Small as its military may be, 6,000 peacetime troops and 15,000 able and motivated reservists, according to uh, Esti Kaitsavagi's official records. 
Estonia loves a good military parade as much as the next country, and penguin parades are staples of the annual independence celebration. The parades vacillate between cities each year, and each one culminates in a grand presidential reception complete with stars of stage and science, academia, and sport. But that time around, with Vladimir Putin growing grumpy or ambitious or reckless or increasingly unaware of where his troops were and what they were doing with their guns or some combination of the above in nearby Ukraine, the selection of Narva was defiant or provocative or ambitious or provocative or some combination of the above. I read every word of that article and then I clicked on the photo gallery. It made me feel cold, what I saw. It made me feel the same way I felt when the man on the bus confirmed my mistaken cames were really decommissioned missile silos. I exhausted the images and returned to Google for more angles, more stories, more pool reports. Reuters, the Associated Press, United Press International, Russia Today. I searched for everything because it was so damn chilling and familiar. All those varied flags in the background and all those people looking on, and I couldn't stop clicking, couldn't stop feeling a grainy blend of fascination and sadness with how familiar it all looked. So many tanks, so many troops, APVs filled to the brim. In the videos, so much noise consuming the place that for me had been so quiet and off the way. A couple hours drive from the place where that hopeful soldier worried so openly about his job security in the face of the coming rush of peace, I watched tanks and armored vehicles of all manner rumble down the streets I once walked. I watched troops from across Western Europe march their erect flags past the doorways of restaurants where I'd eaten and others I'd been warned off of, past the apartment doors, people with whom I'd drunk um, of Sitchin Burnoff and Kofala and whatever other exotic beers had been dumped into my glass. People clapped and waved in front of the convenience store where I'd asked fruitlessly for directions but bought a Coke anyway. A grandstand for dignitaries was set up before the facade of the hotel where I'd showered and changed before catching an overnight bus toward Poland. I saw as a backdrop that bluff top fortress and all those large blue, white, and red flags, and I swore I could make out distant figures of Russian troops standing sentry, watching it all and wondering what might come, what might happen next. As I clicked through the pictures and watched cell phone video clips, I imagined the bus, drive, bus station soldier was again among their ranks, five years older and five years wiser, his kids growing, and all traces of worry gone from his face. I pictured his narrow shoulders in there somewhere, boxed in between all the marching others, or maybe with his hands gripped around the controls of one of those menacing green tanks, it just tracks grating against the already rugged asphalt. Perhaps I'd failed to convince him years ago, and he was standing along the edge, watching now with his family because he'd vacated the force with all that peace-addled hopefulness, found some other op occupation. I remembered so distinctly the concern that he wore on his face, the pleading look in his eyes, as if maybe I'd be willing to return home and wage an argument against calm. But of course, I wouldn't need to. If only he'd run into the, if only he'd run into the old man from the bus that day instead of me, the one who had seen everything once before and who could have told him the sad truth of it all, that a man whose fear is peace will always find comfort. Thank you. So, tell us what's next for Verbatim. Is this uh, going to be a yearly thing, quarterly? Uh, what, are you, what are your plans for that? I plan on it being a yearly thing. Um, 
sort of like the the previous journal I was part of, uh, I think everyone involved asked whether or not it would be a regular publication um, because they wanted to be part of it again. And I think with how popular it was this time, it won't be that difficult to to argue that we should continue doing the program in the future. Absolutely. Okay, great. Well, thanks for talking to us today, John, and uh, please stay tuned to our podcast feed for those extra stories. Goodbye.